1: This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
0: You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast.
1: Tim Donovan, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time and for speaking to me. Do you want to say hello to my audience?
0: Yes, I would. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone. Thank you, Stuart, for inviting me along. And I'm very much looking forward to talking about The Mysterious Mrs. Hood.
1: Yeah, so we're here to promote your book. Now, on the day of recording, it's February 20th. This comes out on Thursday, the 22nd of Feb. By the time my audience hears this, it will be out already. So you've got a kind of work with a time travel brain when you're doing this kind of stuff. The mysterious Mrs. Hood, we will get there. Before we do, let's talk a bit about yourself. Because this kind of all came about from when you were 10, I believe you mentioned, that you stumbled across this mysterious black and white photograph that piqued your interest. What's that story?
0: Yeah, indeed. So yeah, as a 10-year-old it was at my grandparents' bungalow. They had this kind of big bag of family photographs. And when I used to go around there and spend the weekends over with them, I used to look through this bag of photographs. And I was just fascinated by all of them, really. But there was this one that really called out to me. And at the time, I I wasn't really sure why. It might have been because it, it was so different. It was a black and white image. So We're talking about the 90s, so there was a lot of vibrancy and colour in the 90s. So it looked very different from, from other images that I was obviously used to seeing at the time. So I asked my grandmother about the people in the image, and she didn't really know too much about them. All she knew was that the woman in the image was her mother's sister, so her aunt, and the man in the image was her aunt's husband. And then she said quite kind of, I can vividly remember the conversation she said quite unexpectedly, and my aunt was murdered. And that was about it, really. She she didn't know much more than that. So there was this kind of image that really called out to me. And then there was this question over what had happened to her. So that stayed with me for, for quite a number of years. And it wasn't until... I was a photography student and I was working on a project about the family archive that I kind of recalled this image and revisited it and decided that I wanted to do some more research into the story and to try and find out what had happened to Mary Jane
1: Was there anything in that interim period between being 10 and being a photography student then was it ever mentioned again or because as a 10 year old murder is kind of i guess something you might not be able to comprehend fully. So I'm just curious as to how that stuck with you for so long, because when we're kids, we hear so much stuff that we forget. We don't even probably remember earlier than five or something. So what was it about that in particular that did stick with you? I've got the photograph in front of me. For anyone listening, it's Herbert and Mary Jane Bennett. And Herbert sort of stood leaning on, is it a chair or something that he's got his his right arm on? It looks like. Chair, yeah. yeah. Mary's in a chair with sort of a right arm, leaning on it. Quite a casual pose, really. Is it in the book that you mentioned something about her eyes? You saw a bit of sadness in there.
0: Yeah, I think certainly when I revisited the photograph later, that's what I realized it was that was drawing me back. A sadness in her eyes, a sadness, a general sense of sadness, perhaps, that I knew in, I think it would be three years or so from when that photograph was taken, that she would be dead. So it was that thing, the sense of sadness that really called out to me, I think. But you asked about the time period in between. So there was a bit of research that happened there. My mum was also quite interested and intrigued by the case. And she kind of did a little bit of research, but this was kind of back in the day of dial-up internet. And so information wasn't widely accessible. So What that looked like was, and I can remember this as well, kind of trips to our public library, our local library, to look at books to see if there was anything that was published about the case in books. But again, at the time there wasn't really anything. And what I have found since I've been researching is that the books that publish information about the case are very old. So there was books published kind of at the turn of 20th century in the 1920s. And I think the latest one on the case was in the 1960s. So yeah, there was very little information out there at the time that my mum was looking into it. She gave it a go and then found that she couldn't find much information but I remember actually at, at school, we did a project on, or we were learning about capital punishment. And I remember saying as part of that about this case and, and talking about this case. And so it, it is something that kind of stayed with me for whatever reason for a, a number of years.
1: How did you start the research? So you're looking into this as an adult, basically. And it's such an old case that hasn't been written about for like six decades. Where do you start? Because with old cases like this, we've got the archives, of course, but it just seems like such a forgotten period of time that most people wouldn't know where to start. So I'm just curious as to whether you had a plan, and if you did, what was step one on that?
0: Well, back when I first started to research it, so as a photography student in the the late noughties, there kind of was no plan at that time. But access to the internet was easier. So a lot of newspapers had been, or some at that point, newspapers had been digitized. So access to kind of historical information was much easier, certainly than it had been kind of 10 years before. So that was very much my starting point looking at, I think initially it was possibly the Times Digital Archive finding newspaper reports on there. And that kind of gave me a bit of a lead. And then just on some kind of research on the Internet, I found a member of our extended family, a relation, a direct relation of Mary Jane and Herbert Bennett. And that kind of led on to other things. And I started learning more about their side of the family and their history and then I guess with any kind of historical research, it's about following leads. So one thing often leads on to another, and then you just have to kind of follow that trail. So it is quite like detective work in that you're uncovering kind of bits and pieces of information and, and seeing where they lead to. So that was kind of when when I was an undergrad student, and then After that, I went on to do a postgrad in information studies. So that's what qualified me to be a librarian, which is my job today. And that really gave me the grounding in research. So I kind of learned how to research as part of that course, and then as part of my work since then. So that then gave me more structure to my research. And I kind of had an understanding then of where to look for information obviously which sources are kind of more trustworthy in um, the information that they provide so it became a lot easier when I'd had that kind of experience.
1: What were your thoughts at first was you plan to just figure out what happened or was it in the back of your mind that you were going to turn this into a book had you ever written anything before this?
0: No, this is my first book. And I never, yeah, I never set out to be an author to write a book. It was very much, I wanted to find out what had happened. And part of that drive came from my family not knowing what had happened as well. So part of the motivation was, I need to find out what happened because I need to know. And I feel that my family needs to know. So that's where it started. But then as the research progressed, and as it became obvious that there was quite a lot to this story, that's when I started thinking, okay, I need to write this down. But then even then, I wasn't really thinking this needs to be a book. And it wasn't really until I started writing it down, and kind of getting feedback and and advice from people that I thought, okay, this could be a book and people think that this is interesting. People find this interesting. And that's when I kind of thought, okay, this is a story that should be shared.
1: How did you find the process of converting your research into something that's legible, I guess, for the general reader? Because I'm not comparing it to what I do because I've really... Authors are just legends in my opinion, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, I just can't comprehend how it's done. But I would get the research, convert that into a script. What's the process and how have you found it doing that? So let's say it's your I don't want to call them scribblings down, but your notes from the late noughties and the books come out now 2024. Quite a few years, isn't it? So what was how have you found that process?
0: Well, I have a I have a very big bag of my scribblings which when you've kind of written a book, you do look back on all of your research and all of your notes and you think, I have no idea what I'm going to do with that now. So yeah, there were a lot of, like very early on, there was a first draft, which I kind of wrote around that time when I was an undergrad. And then I parked it. I don't think at that time it would have been good enough to be published. I think I needed a lot more experience in terms of research and writing to be able to produce something that was publishable. That was parked there. And then I kind of went off and I did my course in information studies. And it wasn't until I suppose there was a bit of a gap there while I was going and, and working in libraries and focusing on on my career and then I kind of, I guess there are, there were certain points in, in my life where for whatever reason, I was pulled back. So in the late noughties, it was because there was this project on the family album at university and that really pulled me back in. And then I think it was 2017 when the BBC picked up the story for a television program called Murder Mystery and My Family which was new at the time. It was the first series. And they originally pitched it as My Grandfather Was Innocent. That was the original title. But the premise of the series is that they pick up kind of historical crimes and investigate with the intention of testing the conviction of the accused to see if in modern day courts the conviction would be upheld or not. So they'd picked Mary Jane's story as part of that. And because I'd done quite a lot of research, I was asked by the production team to kind of share some of that research and ultimately to be interviewed speaking to my third cousin, who was kind of the main family member who was followed around as part of that program. It was partly because of the way that the story was represented in that program. It was represented in a way that wasn't focused on Mary Jane it wasn't focused on kind of her as a victim that made me again kind of think okay this is a story that needs to be told because Mary Jane's voice isn't in this and I think that's the thing that really pushed me into thinking okay I'm gonna write this and I want to write it in a way that Mary Jane is heard and her voice kind of comes through in the story At the same time, I was very kind of aware of my personal biases because obviously as a relative of Mary Jane's, my intention was to tell her story, but in an objective way as possible. So being very conscious of that, I think helped. It hopefully comes through in the story that I'm not kind of trying to sell one side or the other I'm trying to present a balanced view
1: were you aware that the tv show was gonna come at it from that angle or was that something that you learned after the fact
0: I had an idea because of how it was originally pitched that they were potentially going to come at that angle but I think it felt like it should have been something that was very balanced given that. The idea was to test convictions. So obviously you then do have to present a balanced view. But I mean, I'm not going to kind of say what came of that program in case people want to watch it, but it was a balanced view. I just felt that Mary Jane wasn't heard as part of that story.
1: At what point did... So that Seven Dials that publish it, which is an imprint of Orion, right? So at what point did they become involved in wanting to turn this into a book?
0: So the writing journey has been a couple of years in the making. So when I was producing my kind of final draft, I signed up to the British Library's Royal Literary Fellow Scheme, which kind of means that writers can meet up with experienced writers for some advice on kind of what they're writing, some feedback on their writing. So I had a couple of sessions with Wendy Moore, who's a fantastic nonfiction author and journalist. And she was the one who kind of said to me, you need to pursue publication for this. It's worthy of publication. At that point, I was still not considering myself a writer and still not believing that this was a book that that could be published. So that was, in terms of my writing journey, that was amazing. And I'm very grateful, grateful to Wendy. So the first kind of stage then is to seek representation from a literary agency. So I kind of submitted the proposal to a few different agencies and Hannah Schofield from LBA came back and said that she loved it and she wanted to represent it, which was Fantastic. Hannah then kind of submitted the proposal to various different publishers, and then I think it was about just under a year later, Seven Dials took it on as a book to be published, and that was in december twenty twenty two so since then we've kind of been working on on the manuscript, and it's been going through the various different stages of editing and printing to get to where it is now.
1: The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. It's amazing how long it takes, isn't it? Considering that's just over a year from taking it on to release date, just back and forth editing. Do you ever feel, I've never been in that situation, but do you ever feel that with the volume of edits that come back, does it ever get to a point where it feels too far removed from your original work?
0: No, it really didn't in this case. So I didn't do things in the right kind of way for nonfiction. So I was always going to write this book. And I wasn't always when I was writing it, I wasn't always kind of of the mindset that I'm going to have this published, or I'm going to seek publication for this. Because of that, I had a complete first draft Ready to go when I kind of went out to the agencies. With nonfiction, that's not normally what you would do. You would normally kind of write a proposal. So that would be like a chapter by chapter breakdown with maybe a couple of full chapters in there and you'd send that out. But because I had a full book by the time Seven Dials signed up to it, it was in a really good kind of state to begin with. And not a vast amount changed in the first couple of edits because so much work had already gone into it. That was great. And the input that Beth, my editor at Seven Dials, had was fantastic. And it really, I think, brought it to life. So it's kind of, there were several edits, but no major changes in in any of those. So it was great.
1: With these proposals, then, because you had a full manuscript, I take it you wouldn't send that in before being signed up, right? That seems like it'd be a disaster. Or is that what you did?
0: No. So I had a full manuscript, but I then had to write a proposal. So I kind of did it backwards.
1: So what does the proposal look like then for someone that's never written one? What does that consist of? Is it a few paragraphs? Is it a few pages? What does that look like?
0: It is quite a substantial document because it's basically the whole book, but condensed. So you will include a couple of full chapters in that and then summaries for every other chapter. But that is written in like full prose. So it's a style you'd be writing the book in. So yeah, it was kind of, it was easier for me to do that after I'd written the whole book, because obviously then I was just summarizing. I was just going, okay, I know this chapter really well because I've written it in full. So how would I summarize that? And I think it's really good for when you're writing a proposal that obviously gives you the chance to test out your idea. So if you can fill out a proposal, if you have enough content to fill a proposal, then that's a good indication that you've got enough content to create a book. With fiction, it's different, and you would have a full manuscript when you go out to publishers. So it is a bit different with fiction.
1: Who has the final say on? the title of the book
0: the final say is with the publisher but certainly with seven dials it was a joint thing I think it was always called the mysterious mrs hood and then the publisher kind of came up with the subtitle but yeah it was a collaborative thing but ultimately the publisher has the final say
1: so that subtitle, it's A True Victorian Mystery of Scandal, Arson, Murder, and Betrayal. And then just above the title as well, it's uh, quoted as saying a real life Sherlock Holmes mystery. So let's talk a little bit about the story. So Mrs. Hood is a pseudonym, basically, for Mary Jane. And she was found on a beach one day with, it was a bootlace, right? Tied round her neck?
0: Yeah, mohair bootlace.
1: And she was found on the beach by this lad. So that kind of introduces what's gone on. But behind that, the whole story is just, it's unbelievable, isn't it? It's so bizarre. You've got faking boat trips to America, going to South Africa. You've got leaving your child with someone, calling it something else, and pretending you have this cousin who isn't your cousin. How on earth did you structure this in a way that's, able to be followed by someone because it is quite convoluted isn't it and it could easily get out of hand if you let it
0: yeah there are a lot of people involved as well so one of the earliest pieces of feedback I had was there are an awful lot of characters and there are a lot of things going on so a couple of things to help the reader is that we've got a list of characters in there and we've got the family trees which show the connections which hopefully helps given that there are some kind of pseudonyms going on as well. So yeah, I think that's one of the big things when I was researching the case, trying to work out what was factual from an awful lot of press coverage. And a lot of that came from kind of looking at witness depositions and figuring out what the testimony was of each of the different people and then piecing that together into a narrative. And then the kind of easiest way to do that, I felt was laying that out in a narrative that was quite linear. So we start in Great Yarmouth when Mary Jane's body was found on the beach. And then it kind of goes back slightly to kind of trace her arriving in Great Yarmouth. And then eventually we go back even further to look at some of the circumstances around her kind of life in the few years before, ultimately to then catch back up. There's a bit of kind of moving around with time, but I think in terms of dealing with all of those details, that's the easiest way to lay it out for the reader.
1: What I enjoyed as well is I'm, I'm not a buff by any means, but history is something that interests me. So for anyone listening that wants to give this a read, it is a true crime story, like a mystery involving a murder, but it's also a historical text, if that makes sense. Because this is over a hundred years ago, I think you did a good job of setting the scene for a lot of it, because there's a lot of cultural things we weren't aware of. It could be something as silly as wearing a hat. People would raise an eyebrow if, if you didn't have a hat on. Really strange things that you wouldn't consider nowadays. How enjoyable was that experience, just finding out about the historical side of this case?
0: Really, yeah, really enjoyable. I'm very, very interested in in history, especially the Victorians. I think they are fascinating people. And quite early on, I realized that in order to tell the story, it needed to be told within its historical context, because I think there are so many different elements of it. That only makes sense because it happened at that point in time. And I think just kind of an example of that is that certainly with the forensics, so all the circumstances around the investigation of the case, there weren't forensics as we know them now. So that meant that the way that the case was investigated at the time was very much around searching for clues, talking to people, talking to witnesses, police treading the beat. That is something that is very representative of that time and something that we wouldn't necessarily, without having that background, realise today because things are so different.
1: How did you find the process of effectively translating the language used in the sources you'll have found to modern day? Because although it's only 100 years, it is kind of like a different language, isn't it? And there's a lot of out-of-date terminology, I imagine. What was that process like?
0: Yeah, it was. it was interesting. I think even though they used very different language example that brings to mind the doing to death, which is obviously very different to how we would talk about murder today, I used elements of it. So in talking about more of the historical side of things maybe I would kind of use some of those words and incorporate them into the text slightly so that it has that kind of atmosphere but what I really wanted was to make the book accessible so I worked really hard on writing it in a way that was accessible and that wasn't really kind of more of a dense style that nonfiction can be sometimes, it was really important to me that it read like it could be fiction. And I think that fitted in really well with the story itself.
1: I see this quite often with books now that you mentioned that is, I don't know if it's where the wave is going, but it's almost like fictionalized nonfiction, if that makes sense. So you're writing a story, but it's actually. A true story, but it makes it more accessible, I guess. Is that something you've seen that's becoming more and more common?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there were a few books that really inspired my approach. And one of them was the Dublin Railway Murder by Thomas Morris. That one is kind of even more so than my book is very much written as if it could be fiction. It's slightly different in that I think with that one, some of the scenes are kind of imagined slightly so where there wasn't kind of enough historical content to kind of work with to create scenes if you like I think they were imagined whereas I was very I was very conscious not to do that so none of what I've written is it's all based on fact so I haven't kind of imagined and put in any scenes or created any any additional content it is all based on what happened so I was I was really lucky in that respect as well that there was so much content out there that you could make this full length book from what was available
1: what's your opinion on these imagined scenarios i just think of you know tv shows where it says this is real but some scenes have been put together for your entertainment i guess what's your view on people that do that in stories such as this
0: i think that's kind of what comes to my mind as well the um television programs where you've got that added extra i think that personally i wouldn't i didn't want that for this book. Because I was so, I really wanted it to be completely factual. So it's not something that I wanted for this book. In terms of entertainment, I can see why other authors might do it or it might be done for TV to add that extra element of sensation that kind of draws people in. I think with this story, you don't need any more of that. I think there is plenty of kind of sensation without adding things in. And part of my motivation was, as I said earlier, finding out the truth about this story, partly for my family. Certainly that was what my motivation was to begin with. So I kind of saw this as almost something that could be left for future generations of the Clark family, Clark was Mary Jane's maiden name. What I wanted was that to be a very factual representation. So it's almost something that can be left for future generations of that family. And they can go back to that and say, OK, this is what really happened. And it doesn't have any kind of any additional kind of imagined scenarios or scenes within that.
1: What was the feeling when the book was signed off as complete being a member of Mary Jane's family? What was going through your mind?
0: I was pleased that Mary Jane's story would be out there and that people would be able to read it. I think that's something that she would have been proud of to know that her story was being told. I was slightly apprehensive because obviously there there are kind of members of of our family alive today who would still be impacted by what happened to Mary Jane. But I've had kind of various conversations with relatives and it's something that they are really keen to read because they want to know kind of the circumstances around the case. And there are a couple of things in there that certainly I would have been cautious if my grandmother, who I kind of spoke about at the start, who kind of introduced me to the image, if she was still alive today, I would definitely be cautious about some of the, a couple of the things that were, that are mentioned in the book because they were things that she she wasn't aware of and things that she would have been quite shocked by. So I think mainly that shock would have come from her being part of the generation that she was. So I think with generational changes, some of those things won't have as big an impact as I think they would have done with my grandmother. There is that apprehension there that this is telling the story of a relative and the relative is not only my relative, but other people's as well.
1: Was there any cautious sort of feedback from relatives who were a bit more on the... I'd rather you just leave this alone side of things?
0: No, not from my side of the family. And then from kind of Mary Jane's direct descendants, there were, well, her grandson, who I was in touch with a few years ago. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. And his son was the relative who took part in the Murder Mystery in My Family series. So he had kind of been on his own search for the truth through that. So, yeah, I think there is a general sense from relatives that they just want to to know the full story of what happened. And any major apprehension that I would have had probably would have been for my grandmother's generation.
1: Would that have been something that you would have wander about if you had the opportunity or would you have just perhaps written it differently?
0: I think I would have I would have had to have a conversation with her because it's kind of one of it's a key thing in the book and it kind of needs to be in there. But it's definitely a conversation that I would have needed to have with her to prepare her for it. But yeah, I mean if I'm aiming for a true account, then I have to include everything.
1: What do you hope readers take away from this book?
0: That's a very good question. I would like them to understand the circumstances around Mary Jane's death and get a sense of what it was like in Victorian times and how crime was kind of approached and the historical context around that.
1: It's interesting because you've kind of written this, like you've got your, your day job there, you're a family member, you've written this kind of for different reasons than I guess a stereotypical author would release a book, right? To try and get people to read it and get sales and get a new book and all this kind of stuff. Maybe that is in your plans, I don't know. But I think because you've written this for different reasons, it kind of shows in the depth of research for me because you have did your post-grad degree also and you've got your job. But references in this you've got like 30 pages worth of references for everything and you've got historical images family photographs archival documents are referenced on here it's very very in-depth and thorough which i appreciate as a fellow kind of researcher not to this degree certainly not but i think that does come across and it is a fascinating story so If anyone wants to read this, The Mysterious Mrs. Hood comes out February 22nd. Again, that's in the past. As people (laughs) listen to this, it's always confusing. I have to remind myself. I'm going to put a link in the description so people will be able to pick up a copy, Kim. And if they're lucky, I might give this away at some point, my copy.
0: Oh, very good. Once
1: I'm done with it, because I'm not letting go of it just yet
0: yeah yeah it's nice to see it there actually yeah Yeah. have you
1: you not seen it before you must have seen the physical version
0: i have i've got yeah i've got a big box of copies that yeah i need to look at giving away as well
1: oh that's awesome well thanks for coming on kim and for talking about that and what sort of led to the book it is a fascinating read please do have a think about picking it up i'll put the link in the description any closing thoughts then before we finish
0: I would just like to say thank you very much to you, Stuart, and read the book for for more information about what happened to Mary Jane.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll see you next time.